0: We are continuing this morning our series through the book of Romans, and so we are here at this text. It begins verse 12 of chapter 5, where there seems to be somewhat of a, uh, a shift that's going on, or there's a conclusion that's being drawn. As we'll note there, in verse 12, it begins with the word, therefore. As you've probably heard this said over and over again. I've mentioned it to you when you see it, therefore. You ask, what's the therefore Therefore, and So really what it is, is it's a conclusion of what we've looked at in verses 1 through 11 in regards to our justification with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about the idea of justification, one of the ways that we need to think about that is uh, kind of a play on the words. What does it mean? So justification is just as though I've never sinned. It's the concept or it's the idea that we are covered with the perfect righteousness of, of God. And so, as we looked in verses 1 through 3, we have noticed that, the, uh, that, that sin has set in our hearts and in our life, and it's ingrained within us. Uh, the, the Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not a single person here in this congregation or anywhere in this world who has ever lived a life without sin, without wrong, without mistakes. And these are sins against a mighty and holy and wonderful God. And what these sins have done is they bring us under the judgment of God. But one of the things that we've seen when we moved over to the end of chapter 3 is that our, our sins deserve to be judged by God. In order for God to be holy, to be just, in order for that to be in keeping with his character, he must judge sins. He can't just overlook sins can't just arbitrarily forgive sins. I said, I, I know that's what you've done, but, you know, it's okay. A good God, a just God, a holy God must judge sins. And so that, that brings a predicament, doesn't it? Because the judgment that we face is not just a finite judgment. You know, typically we measure our sins by, you know, in, in, in time, in space. But we have sinned against an eternal God. And so that means that our punishment is an eternal punishment. And we cannot pay that. We cannot pay a sufficient payment to God for our sins. And so that's where the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. And that's where his cross comes in. That God is just and God is holy. He must judge sins. But God is also a God who loves. And he demonstrates that love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners like me. He died for ungodly people like me. Christ himself, God's son, the eternal son of God, was able to make that payment on my behalf. He was my substitute on the cross. It was me who deserved to be there. It's me who deserved that punishment. But the Lord Jesus Christ took that punishment on himself. He was the perfect, spotless, sinless son of God and he died for my sins, and he satisfied that payment and that judgment that I deserve and that you deserve. So that's the idea of justification, because we no longer, by faith, as we embrace Jesus Christ through his cross, through his resurrection, no longer are we looked at as sinners. But because we have been covered by Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness And we are judged not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. How he has lived a perfect life in my place and in your place, and how he has died on the cross for our sins. So as we think about those concepts, we begin in verse 12, as it helps us to understand what exactly is transpiring, what what has happened. Really, it takes us all the way back to the very beginning, which is one of the reasons that I read Genesis 3 for our scripture reading for the day, for us to think about what is it that has transpired, where has everything gone wrong, why is it that we are so full of sin, I mean, it's it's a natural consequence of us as humans, that nobody teaches us to do things that are wrong, nobody teaches us to lie or teaches us to cheat or teaches us to steal, it's inherent within our nature, now, it's it's interesting when you raise kids, and you know you you spend a lot of time trying to teach your kids to do things. But one of the things you don't have to teach them to do is to throw fits, to throw tantrums, to ignore you, to talk back to you, to to lie, to steal, or to take those things that's not that doesn't belong to them. That's just something that's inherent that comes out with them. And part of being a parent is to try to keep your thumb on that is to create boundaries so that that doesn't just manifest itself to all kinds of, of craziness. And so as cute as kids are, they are some pagans, <laughs> right? And I say that with, you know, I've got kids, I love my kids, but, man, they can be some godless pagans sometimes. But that, that's, that's inherent in their nature. And So the question is, is where does all of that come from? And I, the answer here is found in... Not only in Genesis 3, but, but Paul brings this out in Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 12, and says, This is where sin comes from. And this is how Jesus is able to take care of this sin. So let me just read the first three verses. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death, death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but, this, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So let's stop right there. Let's pray and just ask God to help us as we go forward. Father, we ask that you will speak to us through your word, and we ask that your word will be like a mirror to our own hearts and to our own souls so that we can see the reality of who we are as hard as it is for us to grasp this concept that we are indeed sinners God I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you will bring this to bear to our lives so that we can turn from our sins and turn to your son Jesus Christ who is our only hope and who is our righteousness and we pray this in the name of your son Jesus amen oh we, we find when we look at this text that, you know, in life that we are, we are judged by our parents. this is true in, in generalities. If, if our parents are intelligent and good looking and morally inclined, then kids are expected to be the same. If they are the opposite of what has just been described, then kids are expected to follow suit. Now, however, sometimes this passing of judgment is wrong. And oftentimes one may used the phrase, if you had only known their family, you would have never expected them to turn out the way they are. According to the Bible, we are judged by what our first parents have done, what Adam and Eve had done, how they had sinned in the Garden of Eden. and, And this sin was passed to every generation. And the primary barrier between people and God is the sin and the guilt that is inherited from Adam. Now, one of the things you may think about that is that we are guilty because of what Adam has done, and you may think that's unfair, and if you think that's unfair, that's okay, because you've got enough sin to be judged for in your own. And so this is the primary barrier between us and God, and this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do. He has come to take away this barrier, to remove this sin that is inherited from our first parents. Christ has overcome the power of sin and death by becoming the victor over sin and death and judgment. And because of Christ, the effects of Adam's sins have been reversed for those who respond with repentance, who acknowledge the fact that they are sin, and they turn to Christ in faith to the free gift of salvation. And by free, I mean that it's freely offered in the concept that there's nothing that we can do to earn it. It's free. It's, it's ours to receive by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, as we looked at those first two or three verses that I read, we were given kind of a, a, a pessimistic view of the reality of the world and reality of our own heart and our own mind and, and who we are. And so, when we looked at verse twelve, and as it begins with "therefore," it, it, it refers to all the way back to verses one through eleven as a whole, just drawing this. Conclusion. And so in those previous verses, they've affirmed that those who are justified by faith have peace with God. What Paul is going to indicate in these next verses is that reconciliation with God does not stand alone. Something has happened. Something pivotal, something dramatic has happened, which is as universal in its effectiveness as sin was in its effectiveness, in, in universality. And so the pervasiveness and the universality of sin is such that it's going to take something just as dramatic, just as dominant, in fact, something that's more dramatic and more dominant to overturn the effect of sin. And what Paul tells us in this text is that sin entered the world through one man, and this man is not named until verse, uh, verse 14. However, there is no doubt as to who he is. Death is introduced as the result of Adam's sin. And this death that Paul refers to is not just a physical death, but it's also a spiritual death. It's a spiritual death. And that's one of our gravest concerns. Death is a terrible and horrible effect of, of sin. It's a consequence of sin. But an even greater effect of sin is the spiritual death. As it relates to the judgment that comes from God to those who reject his son Jesus Christ Now, in in verses thirteen through fourteen, it seems seemed like Paul kind of uh, breaks his train of thought as he goes from verse twelve to verses thirteen through fourteen, and and I think that what he's doing is he's realizing that there's going to be objection here. Now, if you remember that we talked about Romans, that it's mi- it's written to a mixed audience, the Jews and the Gentiles, and so he has to keep in mind who he's writing to, not just Gentiles. But he's also writing to those who are Jews and who have a a background in the Old Testament, who have came out of Judaism, which basically rejected the person of the Jesus Christ as being the one true Messiah. And so he has to keep those things in mind. And so he seems to observe that there's a possible objection before he goes forward. And the objection may be that there can be no sin apart from the law. And so Paul clearly shows sin and death were indeed present and powerful even before the law. The obvious indication that sin was prevalent before the law is the very fact that men and women died. In fact, the concept of death is emphasized in the genealogies of Genesis, more specifically in Genesis chapter 5. And I know how much that when we read our Bible, we are so gravitated to those genealogies, aren't we? You know, this person was born and that person was born chapter after chapter. Oh, we just love that. That just inspires us greatly, doesn't it? But we know that's not true. I mean, there's. I mean, even in my own study, I, when I get to genealogy, the, the, my first thought is, let's just skip over this. But there's a reason that it's there, and it's specifically in Genesis 5. It's because it, it's repetition that this person lived this number of years and then they died. Over and over and over again, like a a faucet that won't quit dripping until you finally call the plumber to fix it. And so over and over again, in Genesis chapter 5, he died, he died, he died. Until you get to the end, I get the point. People lived and people died. And the reason that it's there is because that was not the way life was supposed to be. God had created Man and woman to live in harmony with him forever. And sin has disrupted that. And so in Genesis 5, we see that very clearly, with the exception of one place in Genesis 5. And that has to do with Enoch. It talks about how Enoch lived for, uh, for 69 years. Then he begot Methuselah. And he walked with God. And then it tells us that Enoch was not... For God had taken him. And so you see all of these people that are listed, over and over again, they died, they died, and they died. And then when you get to Enoch, it says he was not. For God took him. And so the intention there is that the author of Genesis is telling life doesn't have to be this way. Life doesn't have to end with death. You can live and live in fellowship with God. And that's one of the things that comes out of this text here in Genesis chapter 5, is that life doesn't have to be this way. Life doesn't have to be living in sin and then dying and facing judgment. You can live life with the person of Jesus Christ in righteousness and find life in Him and find hope in Him. More specifically, finding that everlasting life that comes only through Jesus Christ. You know, another important tenet that is shown in Genesis as it moves its way through Genesis chapter 3 after sin is that we see that that, that manifest this sin, not only in death, but we keep seeing all the time that whenever pe- whenever God sets the people on a trajectory, they seem to They seem to rebel. So we, we see how God fixes the problem in Genesis 3, which is really a, a temporary uh, solution as he, you know, he, he makes the, the tunics of skin and he excludes them from the garden. And so they're set on a, a new path, a new trajectory. And then what happens? Cain gets jealous with his brother and he kills him. And then from Genesis 4 all the way to Genesis 6, the, as humanity begins to populate the earth, their sin becomes so wicked. So wicked that it rises its ups, it up to heaven that God was sorry that it even created man. And then he sends a flood and destroys humanity and through Noah and through his family he's going to create a new humanity. And it doesn't take long till we see that that sin begins to rear up its ugly head and manifest itself again. And then it finally reaches a climax in Genesis chapter 11 where the people say, let's build a tower to God. We're just like God, so let's just build this tower so we can come to God as we, as we please. And God stops that mess by confusing all their language. And so you see this, this uh, immensity of the sin problem that continues on. And so that's one of the things that he emphasizes here in this text, is that sin was not just something that happened because here's the law, now you transgress the law, and now there's sin. Sin has always been a problem from the beginning, starting with our first parents. In fact, verse 14 implies that the sin of Adam was different than those who sinned before Moses. People before the law were guilty of sin, whereas those after the law were guilty of transgression. So there's a subtle difference here. The idea of sin is that you you've missed the mark, here's the mark that God has set, the standard that God has set, and you miss it. Transgression is, here's the law, here's what it says in black and white, and you say, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I want, live how I want. So there there seems to be this intensity, if you will, when he uses the word transgression as it relates uh, to the law. And So people before the law were guilty of sin, whereas those after the law... We're guilty of transgression and Paul illustrates the power of sin so, that it's so significant that it exercises dominion over humanity even before the law and also that sin is even more defiant and rebellious when it is done in the light of God's revealed law. The point is, is that even when the law reveals specifically what sin is, people arbitrarily violated God's revealed law. You remember, what the people of God were doing when Moses was receiving the law. The very first commandment, the very first one that God had wrote, right up there at top, when he comes down from that mountain, Moses, he sees that the people have made an idol and they are worshiping that idol. And throughout all of Israel's history, Israel's history, with the law there in front and center before them. They rebelled against God to the point that God exiled them. He put them into exile because of their rampant sin and their absolute defiance and rebellion in the face of his kindness and his grace. And then the end of verse 14, it shows that Christ is a type of Adam. So from Adam... Sin has come. It's entered into the world. We have inherited this guilt, this sin, this, this inherent nature with us has come from Adam. This is what our first parent has given us. And so in the end of verse 14, it's given us some signs of good news. What is it that Christ is going to give us? So Adam has given us sin and guilt and death and judgment. But what is it that Christ will give us? And so the end of verse 14 shows that Christ is going to be a type of Adam. Adam was a historical figure, as seen in Genesis 1 through 3. He sinned in the Garden of Eden, disrupting God's perfect creation and bringing sin into the world. And because Adam has sinned, sin and death has passed over to every single person. And that sounds like bad news, does it? Because it is. It's terrible news. It's the worst news that we can receive. But notice at verse 15 that there's a trajectory that changes I don't want you to miss this word. I, I think that in uh, biblical languages and reading the Bible, that conjunctions are some of the most important forms of speech or words. And so if you'll notice there in verse 15, it starts with that three-letter word, at least it's in my translation, but. So Adam brings all this sin. There's this transgression of all. There's this defiance. There's this rebellion. We're, we're all stuck in our sin, but. The free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, many died much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So Christ has come to reverse the effects of Adam. So even though that there is a similar relationship between Christ and Adam as the two heads of humanity... The purpose purpose of of chapter 5 and verses 15 through 17 is to drive home the contrasting features between Christ and Adam. And there are three major contrasts that are shown. So look with me, as I've already read in verse 15, Adam's trespass brought death, while the grace of Christ brings abundance. The gift of God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ is an overwhelming gift that keeps on giving. Who can truly fathom the riches of God's grace? And, no, and notice here in verse 15, it's a free gift, and it's not like the offense. There, there is this how much more quality that we're going to see as we read in onto this. As defiant, as dominant, as powerful as sin is, that it is not like what Jesus Christ brings. It is not like that free gift. In fact, we see this idea of much more the grace of God. So there's a lot of sin, there's a problem of sin, but there's this much more of the grace of God that overcomes. And the reason there's this much more quality to it is because it comes from God. God who inherently is everlasting to everlasting, who is unfathomable in his riches and his wisdom and his goodness in all that he does. Who can truly know the goodness and the greatness and the grace and the mercy of God. And so Adam's trespass brought death, while the grace of Christ has brought abundance. Then look in verse 16, the second contrast centers on the result. So in verse 16, we have the results of what Christ has done. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in. And justification. So the trespass of Adam brought condemnation, while the free gift brought justification. And the word condemnation refers to the sentence of judgment leading up to the execution of that sentence on a sinner. The terrible result, this condemnation, however, is nullified by the free gift of Christ that brought justification. There's also another contrast in verse 16. Condemnation came via one sin, But the gift of justification followed many offenses, which is the sin of all humanity. So now, just think about what this means. So condemnation comes because of one sin that one man has done. And it's Paul's way of intensifying the greatness and the grace and the redemption of Jesus Christ. But justification comes after many sins. From Adam all the way to now, combining all of that sins, God's greatness is such, his abundance is such, his how much more quality is such that you take all the sins of all the world, of all the people that's ever lived, and the Lord Jesus still overrides that by his grace. He's still that much greater than sin. And so it's Paul's way of lifting our eyes beyond our sins, the reality of who we are, and lifting our eyes to Jesus and seeing him as all-satisfying, as the only hope that we have in anything, the only hope that we have in life and death. And so the emphasis is that Christ's gift is that much more powerful and comprehensive. In fact, one commentator states it well. That one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. That is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages of all the people, should be answered by God's free gift. That is the miracle of miracles utterly beyond comprehension. You know, we, we live in a, in a day and age, and sometimes in the context of the church, is that we're really obsessed with miracles. We, we just want to see a miracle. We, we'd like to see, why doesn't these miracles happen that we read about in the Bible? Why don't we understand the miracle of the new birth? The miracle of our salvation that whenever somebody comes into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it is the greatest miracle that can ever happen before our very eyes to see. Because of what God has done, how he has overcome sin, how he's overcome darkness, how that person was dead in their trespasses of sin. And now, through the Lord Jesus Christ, they are awakened to new life and hope. And righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's a miracle beyond miracles. And then the third contrast is between Adam and Christ. It it continues the results. Notice in verse 17 For if by one man's offense death reign through one man's man's offense death reign through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Jesus Christ. And so death reigned through sin, but the recipients of grace, righteousness and life reign. Righteousness and life reign, And so the main difference between Adam and Christ is that in Christ, God deals with humanity on the basis of grace. Grace and gift appear in these three verses, in verses 15 through 17, seven times. I think that Paul's trying to get our attention, don't you think? To understand what salvation is. It's not merited. It's not earned. It's a gift from God. It's a free gift of God. It's by His grace. It's unmerited. The results of Adam's sin brought death and judgment and condemnation as opposed to the results of Christ, which is justification. Justification. The grace of God as bestowed on humanity through Christ not only cancels the effects of sin, but also enables the believer to reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's the end of verse 17. Just think about what that means. Not only does he bring us new life of salvation, but also it is by his grace that he enables us to reign in life, to live life in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to God. How? Through the one. Jesus Christ. And then Paul picks up what he started in verse 12, and he completes it in verse in verses 18 through 19. Notice what it says. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. And let's just think about what he means by this righteous act. Typically, when we think about what Christ has done for us, we we think about just the cross. Right? That is a righteous act. That was the epitome, that's the pinnacle of the obedience of Christ on the cross, his death for our sins, and his resurrection for our life. But let's not forget that Jesus lived a life. He lived a life just like you and I did. He was born, he was a child, he became a man. He breathed the same air that we did. He understood what it meant to feel what we feel, the emotions that we have. He lived this life. But he lived this life in a way that you and I could never live. He lived the life a way that Adam failed to live. And so the life that Jesus lived was absolutely perfect. Perfect. Righteous. He was fully righteous in all that he did. So in his in this one act of righteousness, and when you think about Christ's life and death, the Christ event, if you will, and that one act results in the justification of our life. So it's not our life that we live that makes us righteous, it's Christ living for us, Christ reigning in us. That's where our righteousness comes. And so when we stand before God one day at judgment, and God asks me, Why shall I let you enter enter into my kingdom? You, you can't list the things that you have done. Well, I was I was there Sunday morning when Corey preached his sermon. You, you can't just list these things and say, you know, I, I'm a good person. You point to Christ. Because Christ lived for me. Because Christ died for me. Because Christ rose again for me. Because I belong to Christ. It's all Christ. That's how we enter into God's kingdom. And so we see that he he completes this thought. There's this concluding comparison in these two verses between Christ and Adam. The comparison is on their acts which produced different different results. Adam's act of disobedience brought condemnation as compared to Christ's act of obedience brought justification and righteousness. So we see that in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made sinners. Righteous. And then notice the last thing that we see here in this text in verses 20 through 21. Something that's really been emphasized, but he really emphasizes it again here, speaking about how grace triumphs over sin. Verse 20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The history of humanity has been summarized in the broadest strokes. Through Adam came sin and death, and through the Lord Jesus comes righteousness and life. And now in verses 20 through 21, he turns his attention to possible objections. The law was not intended to prevent sin or for the purpose of salvation. Rather, the law could only condemn And so we find in verse 20 that it actually denotes the purpose in God giving the law was to show the reality of sin. So if you'll notice in verse 20, it says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So that there might be this reality, there might be this understanding that this is what sin is. This is where sin comes from. So that's the purpose of the law and the the place where sin abounded, in Paul's mind, was in Israel's history. The giving of Mosaic law did not lead to Israel serving God faithfully, but Israel was frequently disobedient while living in light of God's revealed law. Israel's sinfulness was so blatant that God drove them into exile by, cre- by clearly stating the ineffectiveness of the law with respect to salvation. Paul shows to the readers that their only hope is in God. God's purpose of salvation is summed up in verse 21. Death reigned in the old age, but in the age of salvation, there is a greater power that is in the world. People are no longer condemned before God, but through grace are righteous and victorious. And God did not merely fix the mistakes of sin or repair the damage, but he has dominated and obliterated the power of sin. In fact, the various uses of the phrase, how much more, abundance, abounding, shows distinctly the greatness of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ over sin. Christ's work on the cross as the second Adam saves us from the condemnation of sin. Christ's work on the cross through his one act of disobedience brings about the greatest reversal in humanity, where those who are in the first Adam, all in Adam, are filled with sin and unrighteousness and death, but those who are in Christ, righteousness and life. And So it's incumbent upon us not to be in the first Adam, but to be in the category of the second Adam. And the way we move from the first Adam to the second Adam is by God's grace through faith. Responding to that grace by repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we find at the end of this text is just a reminder that we cannot fix ourselves. It's one of the problems with humanity and one of the problems with this world today is that we think that there is some way that I can fix the way that I am. But there's no way to fix ourselves. Here Israel had the law. These are the things that you need to do and all that did is it made them worse. And it was God manifesting the greatness and the dominance of sin and really calling people to humble themselves before Him and to serve them. And so the only thing that can fix us is God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Only God has the power to change us. Only God has the power to set us on a new trajectory of life. Only God can do that. And the way that He did that was through His Son, Jesus Christ, entering into our life, entering into a human sphere and living this perfect life, living... Life perfectly, obediently before God the Father. And dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead and offering forgiveness to all those who will repent and trust in Jesus Christ. The second Adam, Jesus Christ our Lord, he brings grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Through his perfect life, atoning death on behalf of our sins and And resurrection and power on the third day, the second Adam from above, truly reinstates in his love those who repent and trust in Jesus. Let's pray together.